You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Every year, hundreds of young people disappear. God help those who get caught in the tourist trap. Tourist Trap, the most bizarre motion picture you will ever experience, as three young girls are tricked, terrorized, and trapped in an old museum where human-like dolls have a life of their own. Now, they want yours. Tourist Trap, from Compass International. Rated PG. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. How you doing, Dalsace? Also with us this week is the head honcho at Geek Juice Media, Mr. Alex Jowski. Hey, guys. Happy to be here. This week, we are talking about the 1979 film from David Schmoller, Tourist Trap. The film stars Chuck Connors as Mr. Slauson, the proprietor of the titular Tourist Trap, a roadside wax museum. When a quintet of young people meet creepy Mr. Slauson, bad things happen. Now, we're definitely going to be getting into some spoiler territory on this one, so if you haven't seen Tourist Trap and don't want the movie ruined for you, turn us off, go track down the old DVD version of it, and come back to us. We'll still be here waiting for you. So, Alex, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Tourist Trap, and what did you think, sir? First time I saw it, probably early 90s, when I first really got into horror films and was renting everything. And at that time, Charles Band was in like high gear with Full Moon. So anything that had his name on it, his producer or director, which mostly producer, I would just rent without question. And that's how I came across Terrorist Trap at the time and found it to be really unique. I was younger then and not aware of all the tropes that I am now, so it still felt fresh. I didn't know it existed until um, you had me watch it for the show. I, I know this is crazy because I'm sort of the opposite of uh, Alex here, as he sought out everything Full Moon. I don't believe I've even seen any of the Full Moon films outside of, uh, and I don't even think it qualifies, Trancer. So I know nothing of Puppet Master or anything like that. So I'm kind of ignorant to Mr. Band, but um, glad to get the education over these last two episodes. I saw this one, gosh, maybe 10 years ago, my friend Rich Osmond over in St. Louis, he and I have been going back and forth over the years, turning each other on to different films. Uh, he has sent me a couple VHS tapes, so that kind of dates where we are with this whole thing. He sent me Death Game, which is one of my favorites, and Tourist Trap. And I can't say that Tourist Trap ranks up there as one of my favorite films, but it definitely offers something that I don't necessarily see too often. Like you were saying, Alex, it definitely plays with the tropes. You know, we've got the teenagers and in danger and this was before i really kind of figured out the whole formula as well i've never been a big like slasher guy so when it comes to teens in danger i'm mostly like a halloween the first one evil dead evil dead 2 and that's about it so it wasn't until much later on it wasn't until like cabin in the woods time where it was like oh yeah these do really follow a formula okay and then you know seeing stuff like without warning and all that it's like all right yeah there is definitely a formula here but i like the way that tourist trap kind of plays with it because we don't have just a slasher kind of thing we've got a lot of supernatural stuff and sometimes those films would venture into the supernatural such as evil dead and then sometimes they would stay you know mostly in the real world but this one 
definitely plays with both pieces. So let's talk a little bit about the film itself. As I said, I mean, it's a pretty basic plot. I mean, you've got five teenagers. Really, you only see four of them together, and then the other one is uh, out trying to fix a flat, and he is the first one to go. And, you know, it's pretty low body count because you only have the five teens to pick off in this film. You don't even have the inquisitive sheriff or anything. So we've got the first guy finding an old abandoned gas station kind of roadside diner thing. And he goes in, finds this body laying in the place, and it quickly turns out to be a mannequin, one of many mannequins that we're going to have in this film. And I just have to put it out there that mannequins are really kind of creepy, and I think they do a great job in this film as far as playing up that creepiness. They do. The mannequins are fantastically creepy. Yeah, there's a low body count in this one, but I always, when I was watching it, felt that all of the mannequins were his previous victims. Yeah, I definitely get that impression too, especially seeing like the, we're going to get into his house later on and seeing like the older people. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's totally his parents. He probably kind of did a Norman Bates on these people, but worse than keeping them in the basement, he kind of makes them look really nice and puts them in the front room. Hey, mom and dad, come on out. And yeah, all of these people, all these mannequins, there's some that are just absolutely bizarre. Like we get in the first scene, the one with like the kind of big smiley face kind of thing, but the other ones look pretty human. And yeah, I'm like, okay, these probably, maybe they stopped by this roadside place before. I got to agree with you on mannequin. I mean, they did two of those sequels to that film and uh, it's terrible. I mean, it's like the creepiest movie I've ever seen. Jonathan Switcher. Punk sex. Loves to talk to his work. You know, you're the first thing I've created that made me feel like an artist. Don't you like a new scarf? He never expected. Not especially. To hear it talk back. I really think I'm going crazy. I am so glad you're working here. I never thought they'd hire anyone stranger than me. You're the only one who could see me like this. To the rest of the world, he's a disaster. You're quiet. And she's a dummy. <laughs> you were one sick puppy. Oh, wait, wrong movie. You know, that Andrew McCarthy, I got to tell you. But, Ooh, uh, man, oof, talk about creepy. Meshach Taylor. But um, that opening in in this is, is really nice because we don't get a lot of explanation as to who this is or what they're doing. It's just some kid that goes off, and there's the scene that kind of gets you to go, okay, well, what the hell was that? And really kind of brings it. I would say it's kind of that we talked about it before, sort of that Joel Silver school of filmmaking, where you got to have you know the explosion in every um, in in every reel, and especially you got to start the film with an explosion. And I would say that that whole like roadside attraction that he gets stuck in, and the things keep moving and coming at him, and bottles are being thrown and all that stuff is uh, is a good little shocker to get your attention to go, okay, well I got to find out what this is all about. Yeah, that opening, I'll agree, is really well done and a great introduction to the film because it has all the supernatural stuff but no explanation yet. It gets you eager to find out, okay, what was that about? And those laughing mannequins that are just the soundtrack for everything. And I love how the the music, the, the crazy music score by Pino Adagio just – stops as soon as that kid gets skewered on this pipe and that awesome 
drip, drip, dripping of his blood. You, it's like, what is that noise? And then you finally figure out, oh, it's the blood dripping out of the pipe. And then when it finally, like, he leans back far enough and all the blood starts rushing out, it's like, yeah, that that works. Well, the thing that's good with the music is it has this, at times, kind of carnival-esque, almost clown, I guess, like. And then there are these sinister notes and, and tones as it sort of shifts. And on a second viewing, I noticed that in the opening credits, which the, the credits aren't all that you know crazy or anything. They must look like Woody Allen credits. It's just you know regular standard white text on black screen. But the one thing I noticed is the music's playing, and it's all kind of carnival-esque, as I was saying. And as soon as Chuck Connors title you know his credit comes up it gets sinister so i thought well that's a good tell on a second viewing although you probably wouldn't notice on the first viewing that it gets sinister when his name comes up in the credits i always enjoy that i was like i especially will pay attention during credits when the person who did the music when their name comes up to see if there's any kind of a flourish and i i would say Maybe eight times out of ten, I'm usually gifted with like a little musical flourish that happens when the composer's name comes up. But I like it more when we kind of get their theme or something that happens when some of the actors' names come up. So that was nice that we had that little touch. And yeah, I didn't pick that up the first couple times I saw this because that opening is it's just kind of goofy the, the yeah. opening credit theme yeah. but yeah it, it is nice because it throws you off you may not necessarily know how twisted things are going to get and this does kind of you know it really kind of starts with other than that murder i mean we then we go back to the teens and we've got the one guy and the three girls and they're you know heading off and it's kind of it reminded me of course of freaked where it was just like oh a freak show and here they're like oh great a a a roadside attraction. This will be great. This wax museum sounds awesome. And they just kind of forgot about Woody. It's like, I don't know why they took off the way they did, but I don't know. They, maybe they were looking for Woody. Maybe they got the, the tire fixed without his help, but they're off and going and they, uh, run across this um, roadside attraction and then the girls are off, you know, skinny dipping. And it's like, all right, <laughs> we've got all of these things set up where it's just like so much danger, but then it takes a while for them to really get into real danger again. One of those girls skinny dipping is the beautiful Tanya Roberts. Interesting look she's got going here with the dark, dark hair and the blue eyes. It was almost a little spooky at times. And that tube top she's wearing the whole time. That is just threatening to, to fall off. <laughs> yeah, and this was, as far as I know, this was before her time on Charlie's Angels, which I think is where most people kind of got to know her. Of course, I got to know her in Beastmaster, so I was very uh, happy to see her show up in this. And when you say you know her, you mean that biblically, correct? I don't mean it like um, how she was in the Greatest Heroes of the Bible TV series. No, I, I don't know that, uh, unfortunately. I I wish I knew Tanya Roberts in that sense, but I just knew of her work. Ah, I've been uh, watching Beastmaster a couple times frequently lately, so I feel as if I know her biblically. I had probably one of the best gifts that a man can have the other day when my wife just kind of turned to me and said, I think it's about time we watch Beastmaster again. I said, yes, this is why I married you. That's a rare find. It is. Because my ex-wife would just make fun of me watching Bunuel films. But anyway... 
moving along, I, I'm not even sure how we want to do this because we can just kind of go through and pick out the deaths and how it proceeds. Um, if the, if that works for you guys, or well, I mean, for me, it it's it, it's kind of a standard of what you see in other films later. I mean, it kind of, and, and I know this is going to be kind of odd to say maybe, but it it reminded me of other things that I saw a couple of years after this. Like, at times I had this feeling of, like, Evil Dead 2 for some reason, uh, like Stuck in the House movies, I think you were saying that. And the, the one thing that's interesting uh, for me when watching this is, first off, I didn't expect this from Chuck Connors. Uh, I can't say that I know a whole lot of his film work. I mean, he was on TV, I think, when I was a kid in some early Fox programming. But, um, like, he's really, it's really quite an amazing piece of work out of him. And the other thing that's interesting is they just spend a lot of time with him, you know? Yeah. And it's not one of these sort of like, oh, we'll find out who the bad guy is, like, in the last minute of the film. It's like, no, we know who he is, and then we, like, hang out with him for, like, 40 minutes. It's it, It's really quite... An interesting structure in that way because I can't really think of too many films like that outside of well I mean there was a couple in the 70s I guess I mean I guess Texas Chainsaw was kind of like that where okay here's the bad guys and we're hanging out with them but I'm trying to think off the top of my head I mean how many times you get a horror film where you're just hanging out with you know the lead baddie and these people are you know doing whatever yeah it really worked for me the red herring that we kind of get through I don't know, the first bit of the film where you think that Chuck Connors is the good guy. Maybe he's a little creepy, but okay. Yeah, it, I, I guess he's an okay guy. But geez, this other guy with this mask on, he's really terrible. And this is awful. And he's terrorizing these kids. And I will say, honestly, the first time that they did the reveal that that was Chuck Connors, I was genuinely surprised. Now watching it, I'm like, oh, of course that's Chuck Connors. Of course it's the same guy. But the first time I watched it, I was like, okay, yeah, he does have a brother. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, the, the brother's chasing. The brother's awful. Oh, my God. You got to stop this guy. And then it ends up being him. And I was like, oh, all right. So I was genuinely surprised. And I think even knowing that it's Connors now, when I watch it, it still works. It still works that he's playing this kind of cat and mouse game with them. It might even work better to know that he is able to manipulate these kids this way. And the whole idea of him like doing this different voice when he's kind of the brother ish character. And when he is manipulating, um, you know, the mannequins and all this. And I like that we, have this supernatural angle to it that really, you know, I mean, Michael Myers, there's some supernatural stuff there, like him disappearing at the end and, you know, possible like superhuman strength and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, Chuck Connors, <laughs> I, I love saying this, Chuck Connors is magic and he can do all these magical things and really kind of, uh, you know, puts the zap on all these kids. And I really like that he's not just a guy that's going around with an axe or a gun or any sort of implement that he is there basically torturing these kids and freaking them the fuck out. He's playing with all of them before he kills them. What did this thing look like? Hey, he was wearing, he was wearing some kind of mask. 
Our dear God. That man was my brother. You were hiding him, weren't you? You don't understand, Molly. He never hurt anyone before. He killed Woody. And probably the others for all we know. I was only trying to protect them, take care of them. He is my brother. It's not his fault. He's the way he is. We have to get the police. I'm sorry, but we have to. Oh, Molly, maybe I better find him first. Bring him in myself. No, no, he's too dangerous. What mask was he wearing? It looked like a doll's face. He's trying to look like me when I was a little boy. He always wanted to be like me. You see, I'm his big brother. He always wanted everything I ever had. My face. Well, the supernatural angle I like because it doesn't explain it. I mean, other than a line like that Chuck Connors has when he's as the brother saying, oh, my power. Uh, there's no explanation for the supernatural in it. It's just there. It certainly adds a lot more than you would in a slasher film where, you know, you have the general laws of physics for people to obey and get away from the killer that way. Like with this one, oh, you think she's safe, but you know what? Magic mannequin. We could go into like Freddy territory and say, oh, well, that's magic or that's supernatural. But again, with that, you have the whole idea of the dream world and things happen in the dream world. And sometimes they cross over, but generally they stick to that realm. I like that this one, it is just out there. This is the real world, but this guy has these powers. And what he chooses to do with them is nothing good. That he kills his brother, kills his wife, makes these people that look like them or uses them as the bodies. And the the death of Tanya Roberts when she is getting uh, smothered with the plaster and everything – just absolutely horrifying. I mean, it plays into so many things, as you know, especially the idea of being suffocated and just seeing this slow suffocation. I mean, it's much more effective than him taking her and you know putting her under the bath and and choking life out of her that that way. It's just so insidious. Chuck Connors though does a great job. I did not expect him to give like a hundred and ten percent to this movie, which he does. No, I was much more used to him as just kind of being, you know, the the baddie in the background kind of thing. I didn't really grow up knowing a whole lot of Chuck Connors kind of stuff. Like, I'm sure I saw when he was in Roots. I mostly remember him from being the bad guy or one of the bad guys in um, Soil and Green. That's mostly where I remember him as well. Other than that, I mean, he showed up on Airplane 2. He was awesome in that. But again, smaller role, and Airplane 2 was the the film that you don't necessarily remember as well as the first one. So he wasn't forefront of my mind, but seeing him in this, I'm like, man, this guy really can, can do some great work. Yeah, and the only things I remember him from, and one I never saw, was... He, I think he had a show in the 60s. I think it was a Western called The Rifleman or something. Oh, yeah. And then the one I was talking about, I was referencing, was when Fox first started. Fox, uh, 
uh, network in the mid 80s they had this show called werewolf and he was like the guide or something he was like the father of the guy who turns into the werewolf or something is what i remember and i vaguely remember that show i never really you know i used to watch it when it was on but it was almost 30 years ago and i was like eight so i have no <laughs> recollection of of exactly what he was or how that show was you know in my memory now in my 30s but that was like the first time i remember seeing him and then watching this i was like i said i was totally blown away eric cord was just an ordinary college student until he fell under the curse of the werewolf the nightmares continue worse than i ever remember any nightmare as a child you can end the curse by severing the original bloodline it's like watching a horror movie taking place in the room with me the terror strikes saturday nights at the same time the structure in this film and like for some reason i kept wanting to think scooby-doo and i think it's just because they always ended up at like the carnival or the you know the spook house or something like that so i kept having these like scooby-doo moments as i was watching this thing this mystery's got me baffled well it's got me like hungry when do we eat it certainly does have that Scooby-Doo moment in the sense that most episodes of Scooby-Doo is, oh, the guy that runs this place, you know, isn't getting business, so he's gone crazy and is scared people with ghosts. This used to be a really happening tourist trap and everything, and then the freeway moved, and now nobody comes to it anymore because this does really feel like a man is lonely and he's going to make all of his own friends. They moved away the highway. Oh, I thought I'd gotten off the main road. I knew you must have. Nobody ever stops here anymore unless they've done that. That's psycho. That's the line he says, you know, Norman Bates says to Marion Crane. Like, I was also getting echoes of that, too. I'm alone with all my thoughts and my dead mother. Oh, certainly a lot like Psycho and the fact that he provides the voices for these dead people he's murdered. You spend sometimes thinking that those characters are actually there. Like his brother, you, you know, you believe he's around and killing people and that it's not Slauson at all. The scene where they're having, like, dinner and he's doing the voices for everybody. Eat your soup. Let's eat. That's what I said. Let's eat. Good? Yes, it's very good. You want some crackers? I'd like some more crackers, please. That's what I said. Yes, the crackers are very good. Are the crackers good? Oh, I got to fix that. Oh, man, it's just really, really creepy. And there just aren't enough movies that can put the creeps in you as as well and this one certainly does it well not only that but it'll put the creeps in and then it'll make you laugh for example towards the end there's another scene where he's having dinner with someone and he's doing both the voices and then their head falls off and (laughs) laugh at that 
the scene towards the end where we've got the the guy uh, John Van Ness as Jerry coming in, and you know you think he's there to save the girl. The girl in this case is um, Jocelyn Jones as Molly, who I think is a fantastic lead in this film. She you know all of the actors do a really good job. I mean, when you only have five six actors in a film, they all really have to carry their weight, and I think every single one of them does. But the scene when he comes in and he's there like you know get out of here Slauson I'm going to take uh, take Molly away and blah 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 and Slauson just starts laughing at him and you're like oh well yeah that's because Slauson is you know so powerful or whatever and then he walks over and starts dismantling the guy it's like holy shit <laughs> Just like this whole idea, like all of a sudden we're in like Philip K. Dick territory. And I'm just like, wait, he's not real. And he thinks he's real. This is crazy. <laughs> so. I thought it was just Slauson had the power to turn people into mannequins with a look. Just that whole idea that not only is he going to kill your friends, but he's also going to make these replicas of them that can walk and talk and do whatever and basically trick you that way. I mean, just so, so amazing the way that he you know, just Fs with these kids the whole way through. There's a couple points where the movie drags for me a little, like just, just a, a little bit. I mean, the thing only is like, what, an hour and 25 minutes long. There's one point where we've had so much action and then we take a little bit of a breather that I'm just like, no, 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 I want this to still keep going on. I think that's my only complaint about this film other than, just every once in a while seeing this on my TV, a little tough to see just because there are so many night scenes, but I was all right with pretty much everything else in this film. I'm pretty sure it was a restored version I was watching because I didn't have a problem with the night scenes. It was pretty crisp and clear. I think I was watching the restored, the one I had the director's commentary going on on one program and then i had the movie going on on the other and as we'll hear later on they don't sync up uh for a very interesting reason so i'm not sure which one i was watching versus which one i was listening to alex did you get a chance to see the spider will kill you no i did not in fact um it wasn't until late earlier today that i'm like i should watch that but time i went to go back and rewatch it and i don't know what the heck i did with my copy of it so i wasn't able to see it twice but i did see it one time for folks listening that is uh david schmoller the director that's his student film that he made and it almost won a um, like student academy award or something lost out to robert zemeckis which is kind of a shame and this was before robert zemeckis was making dead eye animated films but still you know actually using actors in his movies spider will kill you really speaks to a lot of what we're going to see in tourist trap it's basically one lonely man one lonely blind man some mannequins that he has especially one female mannequin that he basically turns into his companion and then another friend of his who comes by who doesn't see the woman the same way that the blind man does and i found it very interesting and it's about a half hour long well acted well put together and i i like that during the commentary he does bring that up quite a few times as far as that being a very much an inspiration and being the the template for tourist trap i have seen other films from the director but i have not seen that student film of his 
I also like that he brought up the Twilight Zone episode, the After Hours, which used to scare the heck out of me as a kid, which was the Twilight Zone where it's the people in the shopping mall and uh, After Hours, and they're running around, kind of being pursued and everything. And as you find out in the typical Twilight Zone twist ending, they are actually the store mannequins, and they come to life after, you know, the, the the store closes, which, if memory serves, Rob, kind of plays into your mannequin film. It's been so long since I've seen that one. Um, it, it's been so long that I forgot that it was even Kim Cattrall as the mannequin. Well, we're standing here exposing ourselves. We are showroom dummies. The other thing that I liked in tourist trap is like we were talking about the music and there are some scenes where the audio where the sound design is really good it's actually the sound design is better than what you would expect for low budget film in that era and you get the sound of the the music that's playing in the room and then you have the score like on top of it and they kind of will compete and complement each other at the same time so it's kind of a brilliant idea in certain points in terms of how the music is used, not only to give you the atmosphere of the room, but to also give you the score at the same time. Yeah, and like we mentioned before, the whole idea of Chuck Connors doing this other voice when he is um, his brother, quote-unquote, really interesting voice. And then I didn't notice until today when I was watching it so closely with the director's commentary, Schmoller every once in a while would kind of drop out and the music would come up, or the soundtrack would come up pretty loud. And there's a few times where you can hear that voice just kind of being layered over things. Like even at the beginning, after the guy you know gets it with the pipe and everything, that voice comes up on the soundtrack and it's just like, ooh, okay. And I can barely make out what he's saying, but it's just kind of nice that that's there. And just this extra little touch that's going to be, you know, throughout the rest of the film. All right, we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is from director David Schmoller. The second is the continuation of our interview with Charles Band. But first, some important messages from our sponsors. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10... Free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. For you, the listeners of the Projection Booth podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download 
with a 30-day free trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. You can download The Secret History of Star Wars by Michael Kaminsky or another book of your choice for free by trying audible.com and it's yours to keep even if you cancel your subscription. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash projection booth. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash projection booth for your free audiobook. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. We are the Popcorn Poops. My name is Dustin. And my name is Jessica. And together we produce Popcorn Poops, the best married couple movie commentary track podcast on the internet. Join us each week as we take turns picking films and then watch and discuss them together. If you're at home or with a computer or device, you can sync up the movie and watch it right along with us. However, you don't have to sync up the film to enjoy the show. Feel free to tune in like you would to any other podcast. Please visit us on the internet at www.popcornpoops.com. Again, that's www.popcornpoops.com. Did I read right that you studied theater with Alejandro Jodorowsky? Well, yes. I mean, it's, it was rather indirect. I uh, was going to school in Mexico City, and I would go and watch his rehearsals when he was doing theater. So I wasn't, like, taking classes or anything from him, but I just got to watch him work. It was great. Yeah, what was that like back then? Uh, you know, Mexico City, uh, we have sort of, we don't really kind of think of it, but it's a big metropolitan city, and so there's always a lot going on. This was... Before, I think I'd seen one, he'd made one film, might have even been before he had made his first film, I'm not really sure now, but, um, but he was mainly doing theater, and, and uh, it just was kind of exciting. I didn't know a lot about theater, I wasn't even into film yet, uh, I was really wanting to be a writer, but it was, um, you know, he was very anti-American, <laughs> which was just kind of interesting, and his plays always were very political. I, w- I wasn't looking at him as a film director because I don't think he was, he was, he really wasn't a film director yet. So you said you were interested in writing. What kind of got you from that into filmmaking? Well, I started writing, you know, when I was 15 and in school, I just wanted to be, you know, at that age, you just have these fantasies of being a writer. My, I, I, I was, I was going to boarding school and, and my roommate was, Tommy Lee Jones, although his name was Tom Jones at the time, before he, before he became an actor. And he was on the poetry magazine at school, and I gave him one of my poems to read, and he said, um, it, he called me Shmoli. He said, Shmoli, you ought to be a writer. No one had ever told me that before. This was, uh, he just kind of planted the idea. So I really didn't know anything about film. I, I got married and went to move to, back to, to Texas, and, and I was going to University of Texas at the time, and I had some friends that were in film school, and they, the way they talked about it, it just sounded a lot more fun than just being a writer. So I, I started taking film classes, and that's how I got into it. Was there any particular film that you kind of 
said, this is what I want to do? Was there an inspiration for you when it came to that? I wasn't one of those people, you know, who started film early. I started very late, and I wasn't really much of a moviegoer. So it really wasn't until I was in film school. And I think the first, I, I took an Italian cinema class and saw all these Italian films. And that was, that really excited me. It was just sort of Italian neorealism. So it was, it, it was really film studies that, that got me really jazzed about being a director. Did I read that you had known Louis Benoit at one point? He was my, my wife's uh, godfather. So I just, he would come over to my wife's parents' house for cocktails, and so and he made these this famous martini that uh, I mean he was sort of known for, and so he would come over and so I you know again I didn't I wasn't in I wasn't into film that was before I I went to UT that was when I was in Mexico City, and um, I didn't really know who he was I mean I knew he was a filmmaker and he told great stories about film but I wasn't looking at him as you know, some kind of inspiration. It was only, you know, once I got into film and really started to appreciate who he was. Tell me about The Spider Will Kill You. How did that one kind of come about? I did a, a, a an experimental video class. And um, was the, the, the year that, that the first Sony video camera came out, it was brand new technology and it was, it was this big, huge, like 50-pound recording device recorded reel to reel and you wore it on your back like a backpack I and mean, then it was tethered to a camera and so we had this this experimental video class where you you'd get a an hour tape and each week you would you would go out and come up with something and i was i did a piece that sort of compared choppers with mannequins like store store mannequins there was this there was this one sort of chain of uh, or line of of mannequins at JC Penney's that were just so bizarre so they if you looked at the infant or the small children mannequins the feet you they had eyes and nose and mouth and 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 maybe one ear was sort of gone and then as as they got older the mannequins would lose features. So by the time they were adults, they had no eyes and no nose, no mouth and no ears. And it was just bizarre. <laughs> Somebody, you know, convinced J.C. Penney, which is not a very avant-garde kind of store, to, you know, buy this whole line of very surreal mannequins. And it just, it just, I just started noticing mannequins from that point on. And, and I wanted to do something after that, with, with mannequins, I think I, I don't remember. Oh, I know. Yeah. So, so the thesis film was the second thing I had done with mannequins, and then Trust Trap was, was the third one that I did. So that just, I, it was just sort of uh, kind of a prop in, in The Spider Will Kill You. And, and I, I, the other influence was I, I, I worked at the Texas School for the Blind all during undergraduate and graduate school. And, so I just wanted to do something with a blind person, you know, a blind person as a character. You worked with uh, Peter Himes for a while, is that right? I was a, an AFI intern on Capricorn, and I was got to just be, you know, it was a paid internship, and and uh, so I was I was there 
during pre-production, production, and post-production. That was right before I did my first feature, so it was the best thing that could ever happen because I got to see how a film was made, feature film. Did you meet Charles Band first, or were there, because there was the whole, the, the band band, as it were. How did you kind of get involved with him? I had um, worked with Larry Carroll on the script. While we were working, he got this job editing, and I think he took over for Ted Nicolau, and Ted Nicolau moved over to a film with Charlie. And so that's that's how that connection was made through through someone we knew. Uh, otherwise, I didn't you know I didn't know him at all. And we gave the script, the first draft of first draft, to three people. We gave it to Sam Arkoff, who was sort of a big B movie producer, and we gave it to Charles Band. And we gave it to Bruce Cone Curtis. I don't remember how we knew Bruce Cone Curtis. I ended up doing a movie for him, my second movie. But uh, we never heard from Sam Arkoff, Bruce Cone Curtis. We, we, had, we, were, we had attached ourselves as the director and the producer. And uh, Bruce Cone Curtis wanted to do it, but he wouldn't let me direct and he wouldn't let Larry produce. And he was going to pay us just a little bit of money. So we passed on that. And then Charlie like the script, and he said, how do I know you can direct? And so I showed him my thesis film, I will kill you, and he said, uh, where I had sort of done the effects, the mannequin coming alive effects that, are, that were in the script. So he said, okay, I guess you can do it. How did Chuck Connors come to the project? Well, um, the way it worked, the way casting worked, is, you know, you came up with whatever your budget was, and the budget was $300,000, and we had set aside 50 for the main actor. Then you call up the agencies and, and uh, you say, who, you know, who do you have for $50,000? So that's this age and, and so forth. And they just send you a list. So I think there were four or five choices. Our first choice was not Chuck Connors. The guy who, I can't, I can't think of his name, he, he, uh, he was in Ron Underwood's uh, City Slickers, he was the cowboy, and he got an Academy Award, and he went out on stage, and he did one arm. Uh, oh, Jack Pallets. Jack Pallets, yeah. So he passed, and I guess Chuck was the second on the list, and we gave it to him, and he, he wanted to do it. It seems like such a different turn for him, but he's so good in it. He was kind of a, a, of a odd choice, but he was at a place in his career where he it, he had this idea that he could become you know the next Boris Karloff or something where he could just be be cast in horror films and have steady work. So he 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 tried really hard and he worked really hard at it. He was he was great to work with. He wasn't he, you know what was interesting is I had Jocelyn Jones was the leading lady. And she was a completely trained actor. And Dr. Connors was, was a baseball player, a professional baseball player who just stumbled into acting. He had never studied a day in his life. And Jocelyn would have, would have all these exercises that she'd have to do to, to uh, prepare for, for a tape. You know, and she had these breathing exercises and she had this chair that she had to sit in and and Chuck Connors would just look at her and just say to me, you know, what the hell is she doing? Can we just do this? 
But he, you know, he he um he worked really hard. Was that his voice throughout the entire film? Uh, yeah. His son, I think he had five sons. They were all like six, six to five, and it, we, 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 one of his sons worked on the film. And when when um, Davy, the Davy character, didn't have uh, uh, any lines, um, the son would play the part when he just had to like walk through, you know, the woods or something. But anytime it was speaking, it was it was Chuck. And then we just sort of he he changed his voice a little bit, and then we in post production we we mechanical mechanicalized it with machines and. This was, uh, as far as I know, J. Larry Carroll's first film that he uh, co-wrote. What was the relationship like with you guys as far as being co-writers together? We went to film school together. So, uh, you know, he, he came out after I, years or so after I moved out there. And I had written a couple of screenplays and uh, had gone to film school. We were going to co-write the script, but he got this job out of town. And I ended up doing all the writing and it just really pissed me off it. Uh, I, what would piss me off is that, that he would come into town on the weekends and I would drop the script at his house on Friday night and then with the plans that we would get together uh, on Sunday and, and, and go over the script. And uh, I, would, I would get there and he hadn't read it yet. And I had to sit there while he read it. That, you know, I didn't mind doing all the writing. I just... Um, I just thought he, he was uh, lazy. <laughs> it seems like quite a coup getting Pino Donaggio to do the score. How did you manage to get him to uh, compose that for you? It was it was a kind of a stroke of luck. I didn't know who he was. He came into town, and I got a call from Joe Dante's office. And um, I don't know how... I, I spoke Spanish because I'd gone to school in, in, in Mexico, and... and uh, Dino did not speak English, but he spoke Spanish. And so I, when they were, uh, they, they called me over. Joe called me over. His office called me over. I can't remember. But anyway, I went over. I, and I helped. Uh, I helped Joe communicate with him when they were spotting uh, Piranha. Piranha. So that, that's how I met him. And I, I went back to, to Charlie. I asked Dino if he'd like to see the movie. Was we had a, a, a picture lock. Or, or a rough cut anyway. And I asked him to, do you want to see it? And he said, yeah. And so he saw it. And then um, Charlie, who, who, you know, lived in Italy for growing up for, you know, for many years. So he was fluent in Italian and they got along really well. I think Charlie just wanted, you know, an Italian composer, but he was much more expensive than we had uh, in our budget. But uh, Charlie sprang, sprang for it. Well, it, it, there's an interesting little side story. Domestic distributor was Erwin Bonds. He was the he, he was he was making uh, Halloween and he was distributing Tourist Trap. So he had both films in. He saw both of them in sort of picture lock, but with no sound effects and no music. And he thought Tourist Trap. He thought Tourist Trap was going to be his more commercial film because. He thought Halloween was sort of just, you know, a babysitter murder. That was the title of that, I think, Babysitter Murders. So then, you know, when John Carpenter did the music, it just transformed the film. When 
Irwin saw the screening of Earth Trap with Dino's score. He, at, at, afterwards, I, 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 I wanted to, you know, I wanted to know what he thought. And he came up to me, and he was so. This is Irwin. He was just. He was furious. He said, "You ruined your movie." And he stopped off. And I think what he meant was that it 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 wasn't a transformative score. It you know it it was a good score. It was an interesting score. It was original, and it it added for me. It added to the movie. It didn't transform it into another kind of movie like. Carpenter's score really transformed that movie and made it as effective as it was. And it was, you know, his movie was so simple, his music was so simple. And it was that simplicity that, that made it so effective. I don't think Irwin is any kind of, uh, I don't think he understands music or, you know, has any great insight into it. I just think on a gut level, he just didn't see it change the movie as much as he saw music change it. This seems like a really, really ambitious film for a first-time filmmaker to do. What were some of the challenges that you faced on this one? Well, the big one is that we didn't have any money, <laughs> and I don't mean, I mean, we didn't, we, you know, we had a budget of three hundred thousand dollars, but Charlie didn't have that money, and he was making three films sort of back to back, and he was hoping he was going to get the money. He had a little bit of seed money. He had fifty thousand dollars from Irwin for the uh, for the domestic rights, and he had fifty thousand dollars from France International for the for the foreign rights. So all three films were sort of developing at the same time, and we knew there wasn't enough money. So it was kind of a race to see which films got started first. And the, one of the, there was another film, I don't remember what, which one it was, but it was a smaller film and, and it started right away. So it was really these two other films, uh, that were racing to see who would be ready to go, to go first. And, um, we ended up being, being that film. But we, even, even just being the second film, we knew we were, he was not going to have enough money. And he, he had a terrible reputation. When I signed my deal, Everybody had told me, he said, as soon as you get your check, you got to go to the bank and cash it. So I, <laughs> I got my check and I went to the bank and I was waiting in line and I, I get this tap on my shoulder and it's Charlie. <laughs> he says, you're not going to try to cash that check, are you? <laughs> That's why I'm here. And he said, well, it's not good. Yeah. And it it just was hard to get money out of him. The crew, you know, he would he would just not show up with money when we were supposed to pay the crew. And so the crew started, they were supposed to get paid on Fridays, I think. And, and they started putting the, the on the call sheets on Fridays, they put the bank as where we would, you know, where, where, where our first starting place was. <laughs> that, that wasn't really where it was, but that, they would they would not go to the set until they got their check. So they just would wait at the banks for the checks, and as soon as the checks cleared, they would go to work. And it was it was that way the whole the whole time. I had actors who wouldn't show up because they weren't being paid, and and uh, it just it just was a drag. We really had got in trouble in post. We ran out. Of, we we were he was totally out of money. All of the vendors started coming to the office, taking machines, you know, editing machines, and furniture, <laughs> and we we would go in every day, even though we didn't have a, a, an editing machine, as long as we had a coffee pot, 
Um, and we would just wait because Charlie was trying to raise money. Eventually, we just, we, you know, we took all the work print and, and we took the whole film and took it home. And just so we, so we had it. We were down, you know, we were, I think it took six or nine months before, you know, once we stopped working on it uh, until we were able to go back to work. And he would, um, he had a, you know, at the labs, the labs owned the negative until the film was paid off. And he had a huge bill uh, at, the, at the lab, but we, we, it was kind of like we had a charge account. So we, we did all of our sound effects because we couldn't afford to create them. So we would go to the, to the this is MGM, we would go to, to the MGM sound library and, and uh, this is before the computer, so everything is on, you know, on film, magnetic. But we'd go in and they, they were in boxes, you know, with these rolls of film, gunshots and <clears throat> those kind of things. And, and we would, you know, listen to them and, and then that's how we did all of our sound effects. So you just uh, recycled? Well, yeah. I mean, you, you did, it was before the computer, so you, you didn't have anything. Now, you know, every, all the sound effects are just in a huge computerized library and it's really easy. But then, you know, you just had to physically find every single effect. But there are some pretty cool, you know, there was, you had these, these uh, from the time machine, you had these Morlock, you know, monster sounds that they made, that the Morlocks made. And so we would put, we would put those sounds in there in different places. And, you know, just the, the history of sound in the, music, in the movie is just kind of a trivia, interesting trivia. You would go on to work with uh, Charles Band a few more times, right? Over the years, you did at least at least four or five more films with him. Yeah, I, he he gave me my most work. Uh, it was a, I was for a while, you know, I was like a number of other people. We were sort of in-house writer directors, especially during the Empire years when he really had some money. Um, we had a this was right at the you know right at the boom part of the VHS. Revolution, and and he had a he had a distributor, he had a bank, uh, so the distributor would guarantee payment on distribution, so the bank would loan loan him the money for you know for the budgets, and he had a he bought the old data into studios in in Italy, so it was it was a real factory, you know you could um, and the way he. Um, made them because this is this is how you know at the, at the beginning of VHS you had all of these mom and pop video stores that opened up and um, all you know people would go in and they didn't want to see anything that was old they wanted to, it had to be new so it had to be a brand new movie it wasn't going to be a movie that you'd go see at the theaters it would be a straight to video movie and uh, the way Charlie sold them was with poster art Titles in a poster, you know, in poster. So he'd have these title contests um, with the with the company, people in the company. And if you came up with a title that he used, he'd give, give you a $500 bonus. And he'd come up with several hundred titles. And then he'd commission, you know, one sheet poster art for each of these titles. And these poster artists would come up with these, you know, crazy posters and a title. And then he would mount them up. Uh, and have about 25 or 30 
around his office. Um, and Austin first would come in from Vestron, New York, and he would go around the room and he'll say, I'll take that one and that one and that one. And he'd buy him in lots of five or 10 or 15, whatever it was. And then the next day, Charlie would call the writers and directors in and say, you know, I want you to do this one and that one. So we would get a, a title, you know, the title of the movie and some kind of artwork that indicated what it was about. And we'd come up with a, a treatment, you know, a story. And then once it was approved, then he would, you know, commission screenplay. It's not the best way to make a movie. The best way to make a movie is you come up with a really interesting idea. You know, a really good story. And this was sort of fabricating. Um, but as as a director, it was a really good way to learn. Most of them were shot in Italy. So that in it, in itself is, you know, you get to do a lot of traveling. The studio, you know, they were real studios. And, and, and you, you get to, the Italians were really great craftsmen, great artists. So the, the Italian crew was 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 as good as, I mean, in fact, they did all of the American films that shot there or the British films that, that came, you know, that, that was, that was, they were, they were the great film craftsmen. So we had sort of studio, they were, the quality was, was we had to compete with major motion pictures without having the budget. So they at least looked as good as a studio movie because they were a studio movie. We just didn't have the schedules, you know. We're 20 days, made them in 20 days. And that really is what uh, distinguishes a, a low-budget movie from a big studio movie. What were some of the movies that you did that were posters first, and then you had to work on what these movies are? Crawl Space was not a poster. Um, it, it actually was a... Uh, Charlie called me in, and he had a, he had a, a set an apartment building set and he wanted to, he had just finished a movie on this, on, on the set. So they'd spent all his money to build this apartment building inside these studios. And I had pitched a story to him while we were in post on, on tourist trap. And he was just too distracted trying to raise money. Wasn't, wasn't interested in it. He really liked coming up with his own ideas anyway. But I told him the story about this guy who uh, had an apartment building and, and he rented to only to women and he would spy on them in the crawl spaces. And the story I pitched him was was that the, that the guy's there and, and he witnesses a murder, but he can't say anything about it because he'd give away you know where he saw the murder. So he 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 goes and he finally decides he's going to go to the police. And he calls the police, and the police go into the apartment building, and there's no body. And he didn't understand because he had watched the guy, and, and there was no way that the guy had gotten the body out of the building. So he goes back into the crawl spaces, and the guys put the body in the crawl spaces. So now the guy knows that he's been spying on people, and, and now he's got the body, and he has to get rid of the body. Anyway, it was a suspense, it was a good, a good suspense story. I ended up selling that to another company. So I said, no, I don't, I don't own that story anymore. I sold it. He said, well, can you come up with something else that in an apartment building with, with crawl space? Because he'd already had the title, crawl space. So there wasn't poster art, but there was a title and a, and a set. So I wrote it. I wrote it to the set. Was Puppet Master more of a poster first kind of thing? I don't 
remember any artwork, but there was a there was a a first draft of a script and uh, by somebody else, and uh, that wasn't that wasn't uh, the title was there, um, but there wasn't uh, there wasn't like, there might have been there might have been I didn't see I didn't you know I didn't use the poster because I had a script. Mm. I rewrote, but um, uh, the only one that I did straight from from a poster and a title was um, called She Beast, and it was a picture of this. Uh, it was a, it was from the waist up, and the the She Beast was, was bare breasted, so you saw you know you saw these women's breasts. And then she had a, a, a wolf face. She's the she beast. I wrote that script, and it was really, I liked the script a lot. It was about a, a bounty hunter who is hired by this town, this mining town, uh, because there, there's these wolves are roaming around, and, and there's this one wolf that's killing people. In the meantime, he, as he's sort of investigating, trying to figure out what's happening, he runs into this naked woman in the woods and kind of falls in love with her and then and then at some point realizes that she's this she turns into the into this wolf. Uh, for, I, I got off I, I I went off to make another movie. I don't remember which one it was. Might have been um probably with catacombs. When I got back the company went under or got was taken away entirely by the bank. And they they closed it down, so I, it just got it just got um, it just never got made. He made most of the films that he went to script with, so it, it, it would have gotten made if, if if the company hadn't gone under. What was the reception like for Tourist Trap? It was not much reception at all. It, it didn't do didn't do very much business. So it, it had a theatrical release, and it was by you know it was, it was the first film by. Uh, or when you're blonde after Halloween, so there was a lot of expectations. You know, they they wanted it to do that kind of business, but it wasn't that kind of movie at all, and didn't it didn't do uh, it did okay. But the reviewers were not particularly kind to it, and it just disappeared. The other thing was it was misrated. It was rated PG or PG-13 for the rating bus at the time, which really shocked us. And at the time, if you if you made a horror film that wasn't an R, a hard R, uh, people were going to go see it. They wanted they wanted to go to a, a you know a movie that had a, a hard rating. So that hurt us. It ended up helping us though in the end because um, because it was PG or PG thirteen, uh, it could play on Saturday afternoon television. And uh, when it got to that stage, you know, after the theatrical, it went to uh, VHS first, and then after that run, it, it went to TV. And uh, it got programmed a lot, particularly, you know, in the afternoons. And so my, <laughs> I get people all the time over the years have come up to me saying, I saw Tourist Trap when I was 10 years old, and it scared me to death. Well, I think you, I just imagine all these parents on Saturday saying, go watch TV, Johnny. And Johnny goes and sees this horrific movie with these mannequins coming alive. And of course, it scares them. So it had a reputation 
it started to build a reputation, uh, and I think it came from TV from its from its TV viewing, not not its natural. It had to be discovered. It was it was it, it was discovered late, uh, and had a, it had a second life and then a very long life. At a certain point, it sort of became a cult film, or uh, horror film fans really liked it, and and it started to build a reputation. And then then it started getting good reviews and and people talking about it and recommending it. You know, so it sometimes movies take a long time. You know, the opposite was. Puppet Master was was an instant hit for Paramount. It was their most successful straight to video release that they'd ever had, and it happened. It was it was instant. It was you know opening first release, you know, and it was it wasn't it's not the pretty good movie. It's just it has these puppets go around killing people, so it's kind of a novelty. You directed the first one. Did you have anything to do with any of the sequels? No, I had no involvement with any of them. You know, it, it's uh, the second one was directed, I think, by Dave Allen, who was the puppet effects person, and it really it, he was not a director, but he wanted to be a director, and and Charlie hired him because he would, he would do the puppets for free, and he wouldn't have to pay him as a director. He just wanted his request to direct. Most sequels don't have this, especially low budget movies don't don't have the same budget. They're much less of a budget. It really, I don't think, other than that, it's an easy movie to franchise because of puppets. You just create new puppets and different puppets. And, but it was not It was not a good movie that, you know, that, that earned the right to be a franchise. It was okay, and it was serviceable and was, was successful. So, that, you know, they, they, they had a reason for making a, a, a sequel. And now everything, everything has to be, you know, movie sort of, yeah, they want them to become franchises right away so they can make more of them because it's got marketing and not having to pay so much for marketing. Right, pre-existing property kind of stuff. Yeah. Tourist Rap came out on Blu-ray last year, and did I read right? Was there some sort of like controversy about the, the release or something? Yeah, it, it, was, it was really funny. Uh, not in a good way. Uh, when uh, Tourist Rap was first released... Uh, on on DVD, which was about 20 years ago, I had never done a director's commentary, and someone said, "Don't watch the movie; just go in and just be spontaneous." And so, I didn't do a very good director's commentary. Like I found myself watching the movie <laughs> and not saying. Uh, so it was it was real. It was pretty much criticized as uh, not a very good director's commentary. So when the when when they did the Blu-ray, I uh, you know I said I'll um, let me do it let me do a new commentary, and I did it here in Las Vegas, and I did it myself. I recorded it myself, and 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 we did a we did an interview, um, uh, which my, I had my students film, and um, I did a good job with the commentary. So they sent me they sent me the film from from start to finish. And I didn't notice, I didn't pay any attention to the length because this was, you know, I, I, it never occurred to me. There was never anything, you know, uh, there was never any editing on the film because there wasn't anything, you know, we didn't have to, like with, with, with Puppet Master, my goal was to get a, an X and then I would cut it back to get an R. 
And that's what I did. I got an axe. I was so happy. Because I, I always, you know, I was criticized in my early movies for not being graphic enough or, you know, not being, they, call, they accused me of pulling my punches, so to speak. And I always said, <clears throat> how hard is it to, to do that? That's not hard. You know, making a good movie is that's hard. And it doesn't have to be this or that or the other. It just has to be a good movie. With Tour Step, there, was, there wasn't anything in it that was going to have to be cut out for TV or for any any reason. So you didn't have, it wasn't, it wasn't going to be like a director's cut because the version that we made was the director's cut. What I didn't know is that Charlie couldn't get, when, when they did the, the, the version, the, the DVD version, they, uh, Charlie was in good enough financial shape so that the, um, he could go get the, the, the original negative and make a good master. When he tried to do that for the Blu-ray, he, he had a big lap bill and they wouldn't release the film. And he didn't tell anybody this. So he ended up getting a version from a, the, from some foreign market that had been cut for television. So they'd taken five minutes out of it to make put in more commercials. And the cuts, they switched things around and they made and they and they just cut out things. There was only maybe one part of a scene that was trimmed that I might have noticed, but I didn't notice. I didn't notice. I did not notice that anything was had been changed. That it was like a television. It was just things were just. They were just trim. So I did, I did, I did the commentary, and everybody's really happy with it. Charlie was happy with it. They put the movie out, and the first, you know, I, I start getting emails. And the first one said, um, "What's the deal?" Because it, it says it's ninety minutes, and, and on IMDb that this is this is eighty-five minutes. I think that's what it was. I thought that because Charlie would always, he had a problem. A lot of his movies were too short, and he would. You know, one time he just, uh, he had a movie that was, you know, like 76 minutes and it needed to be 80 minutes was the least it could be. And so he just ran the tail credits twice, just packed on another version of the tail credits. So they just run twice and, and the movie has a, you know, a longer length. So he would do things, or he would just say it was longer and then not, it wouldn't be that long, but he would just say it. So I just thought that, that maybe the film had been 85 minutes and Charlie just said it was 90 minutes and that's how it was listed. And that's how I responded to the, to the first, first draft. But then I, you know, I actually got the, you know, got, got my DVD version of it and, and looked at it and, 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 and put it in the report, in the DVD player and, and it was 90 minutes. And then I went through and but then I, I just started getting more and more emails and Charlie didn't want to handle the problem. And he tried to put it off on me and say, well, why don't you ask David? And so now it's going back and forth. And, and uh, I started getting really upset with Charlie because it's the worst thing he could have done. You know, if you're going to, he, he knows at this point that if, if you take out 10 seconds, people are going to get, going to go crazy. They're buying the Blu-ray because they're collectors. And they want the best version of that movie that, that has the extras and things that they can get. You take out, you know, you've seen how, how upset people get when, when, you know, they'll take a, a longer director's cut, but you can't, you know, give them a shorter version or at least an unexplained 
And so there was a, you know, and I got really pissed off and I, I, we got into this internet battle that lasted about 10 minutes because he made me really mad and I, I just let loose. He had started taking my name off of, he took my name off of Puppet Master. I had a film by credit and he took that off and he put his name above the title. So it's Charles Band's Puppet Master. When we went to Blu-ray and I, so I, then I started writing about that, you know, I mean, Charlie can, you know, Charlie's a, he's a liar and a cheater and a, uh, and this is what he's done. I, I just started busting him for everything that he's done. And, and he, he stopped, uh, we, and we both stopped because, but it, it really spoiled the, the release of the, of the Blu-ray. It was his fault. I mean, he, he couldn't get, he couldn't get the original version. The guy who, who the, 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 uh, post-production supervisor who did the the DVD 20 years ago, he he knew what he knew what had happened, and he he came out and publicly and started. He didn't like Charlie any better than I do, and he came out and said that it was it was uh, Charlie didn't pay his lab bill and he couldn't get couldn't get the full version. And he had to find a, a an edited TV version. So that that was too bad because the commentary is much more expansive and, and much richer uh, than the commentary on the DVD. And there is this interview uh, on it that I, you know, a brand new interview. So the DVD has some interesting things. It just is missing five minutes. Did he ever rectify it or is it still the shorter version? If you go out and if I were to buy it today, would it be the short version? Uh, I don't know for sure, but I'm, 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 I would bet money that it's the same 95, uh, 85 minute version. It was not. He, he, he wouldn't do that. I don't think he has that much integrity to to do that. It's been that you know. I think he you know sees it as 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 a, as a loss. So you mentioned your students. Are you teaching now? Yeah, I teach at the uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I teach film. I've been there for about fifteen years now. What do you think of the uh, new crop of young filmmakers coming up? Well, it's 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 a it's a really interesting new world. Um, and and my my students have a it, it's a completely different market for them. I talk about it because I just I I, I I made a film a couple of years ago called uh, Two Little Monsters. It actually, is we just uh, licensed the um, it's going to screen on the Lifetime Channel. Uh, I don't know when yet, but and so there's like this old world that where I come from. Uh, which is the you know the world everybody kind of knows about, and and um, then you have this new world, which is the world of my of my students, and and the film I made, Two of the Monsters, is was made in this new world where I could make it for no money because I have access to all of this equipment and and you know people wanted to work with me and and so we made it for you know for no money. Uh, when I say no money, I mean not kind of old world money, but new world money where you just feed people. <laughs> they, they, they work on the film for, for food. But it turned out to be a good movie. I think it got picked up by Lifetime as sort of a nice affirmation that, you know, you can do this old world movie in the new world and get old world distribution. The problem is we have to now go back and get an E&O policy, errors and admission policy. We have to get all these old world things that now start to cost, cost money. But my students, you know, their their future, I, I just last semester, towards <laughs> the end of the semester, I was asking, because um, a couple of my students had made this 
web series that was very successful. I said, so what are you, you know, I said, what are you, because um, he was graduating, I said, where, what, you know, what are you going to do? You know, what's, what's your plan? What's your game plan? How are you going to continue to make film? Well, the thought used to be, well, you've got to go to L.A. or you've got to go to New York or now maybe you can go to Austin or you can go to different, you know, places where you can actually make, make films and make a living at it. But they see the Internet as where they're going to go to work and make money. And they're making money off of their series. And it, it hasn't matured enough to where, it, you know, where I think it will mature. But they were, you know, they were, they were talking about ways that, that uh, these, some of these shows that are becoming successful, how they, how they make money. And I was at South by Southwest last year and learned a lot about, there were a lot of YouTube stars there who, who were talking about how they make a living. And, it, you know, it's just a different way. It's just, it's a new way to keep making films and get them seen and actually make make money. So the, I think, um, you know, when, you, when if you're a good filmmaker, and some of my students are good filmmakers, the problem is if they, you know, take a day job and, and get stuck in it. I think the ones that are probably more successful are the ones who go into production. And in, in, in Las Vegas, it's pretty easy because, you know, it's the wedding capital of the world and you can always start with a, a wedding video company. It gets boring after a while. I had one student who was very successful at it and at his at the height of his success. And it was, you know, you start out with wedding videos and then you start building a reputation. You start taking on commercials and you start taking corporate videos. You can build it to where it's a sort of a, a pretty interesting production company. But he hadn't gotten to that place yet. He was just doing wedding videos and he, he had done 30 weddings in a month. He said, that's it. I'm not ever going to do another wedding video. And he just stopped doing them and he just worked at getting other kind of clients. So anyway, they were those. Uh, that uh, was Mike and Jerry Thompson. They were my students, and and um, I produced their first feature film, which was Thor at the Bus Stop. They just made their second feature film, which is a Popovich movie. And so they're, you know, these are these are really good filmmakers. It, it's still, you know, it's it's. I don't know that you. I mean, I made my living for thirty years as a Hollywood writer and a director, and I didn't make a lot of money, but I made enough money so that I, that's all I had. That's all I did. I didn't, it wasn't part-time work. It was full-time work. That's hard to do these days because Hollywood has changed. It's still a lot of work, you know, but, um, there's, there's, there's just a lot more opportunities now. They're just, they're just different opportunities. I think a lot of it is yet, yet to come. So I think it's, it's, you know, for filmmakers starting out, it, it can be a really interesting time, I think. I've made more movies, I've done more film work since I left Hollywood than I would have done if I had if I'd stayed in, in Hollywood. And part of it is because as a university professor, I'm, I'm expected to keep working. You know, it is possible to, you know, I've done two features since I came here and a lot of, I've done a lot of shorts. You know, the, the problem for the young feature filmmaker is that because the equipment has, is so available and it's so affordable, anybody can make a feature film. And so everyone is making feature films. And so there is a huge glut of feature films out there, and a lot of them are very good films. The problem is how do you get them seen? 
know, the industry that we know, you know, it, you know, you, there's got to be movie stars in them, and and they're very expensive, and people have to figure out new ways of getting their you know, their films seen. When it comes to Tourist Trap, how did you get involved with that project? We're, we're now back in the, in the late 70s, so just as a frame of reference, you know, for those of you who uh, were even around. You know, I was starting to make films. I think Tourist Trap may have been my sixth or seventh feature. I was involved with the director, David Schmuller. Um, there, there was sort of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre crew. I've, I've been in an interesting way involved with that movie in different permutations uh, uh, over the years, even back then. First, um, I licensed the rights to release the movie on my, my label, which was called, I had two video labels back in the late 70s. One was called Media Home Entertainment, the other one was called Wizard Video. So I licensed the rights to Texas on Wizard Video, but I knew a lot of the uh, Texans who made that picture, uh, from the art director to Ted Nicolau, who was um, who became my sort of ace editor back in the 70s, and then you know became you know one of our better contributing directors uh, you know, over the years, Terravision, and of course all the subspecies movies. So, you know, Ted had sort of the Texas. Uh, background and 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 Schmoller was involved and I think they were close friends again my memory is not like crystal clear 40 years ago if it is 40 but um the, you know I I knew those folks and then I'm not I don't remember exactly how Schmoller came around but the idea of making tourist trap and and the, sort of the, the setup and the, sort of the you know, this is today there's been so many movies with creepy dolls and mannequins and, you know they they blurs but back then that was kind of a new deal we we loved the premise, and by then, I, again, I had probably made six or seven movies, and um, this one made sense, and we raised the money. I raised the money. And I was also very close to John Carpenter at the time because he edited, he ghost-edited one of my movies. And, um, you know, my, my favorite story about making Tourist Trap is, you know, John at the same, we were both involved with the same distributor called Compass International, and we were both making these two movies exactly at the same time, Tourist Trap and Halloween, or The Babysitter Murders. So John calls me one day, and he goes, hey, I, I think someone told me that we're shooting like two blocks away. I know you're shooting Tourist Trap, and I'm shooting uh, Babysitter Murders, and uh, we should both both come and visit each other's set. So that was the plan, and sure enough, um, you know, I'm I'm there, and you know, the Tourist Trap, I always, you know, I, I had this vibe at the time, I was always kidding John that we had the more important movies. I think his budget at the time was 300000 and ours was maybe 400000 and it was mainly because we had a real star in our film, Chuck Connors, and, 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 um, and John was working really with Unknown, so we were, I was kidding around about how we had the more awesome film, and we had Chuck Connors, and who did he have, and that was sort of the tenure or the tone of our, our shtick. So anyway, one day we're shooting, and there comes John, and he said, Charlie, I'm literally two blocks away, but I wanted to come by and say hi. So he came, and I introduced everyone, and then I walked back with him. <clears throat> there was Jamie Lee Curtis, and he was using the steady cam for the first time, which I'd never seen before, and he was just a few blocks away at another house shooting uh, Halloween. Of course, the irony, um, well, The Babysitter Murders, which I also thought was a terrible title, so I said, John, you got to find a better title. So to the credit of the distributor at the time, the distributor actually came up with the uh, the, the title Halloween and the campaign, a guy named Hoenya Blonds. And then, of course, Dissolve, uh, Terrorist Trap, well acclaimed, you know, and people liked it, but kind of faded away. And Halloween was, you know, a game changer. 
but uh, that's my my that's the main memory of Terrorist Trap, other than the fact that it's you know it's a clever movie and and was probably of the first eight or nine movies I made till we hit the eighties, the the best of that that early uh, group. People who listen to this and and the fans who followed all these films, you know, they're they the ones that really work do stand the test of time. You know, I, I it's not just in the genre we love, but you know, all film is the same. It's weird how you can look at some movies and. They feel so dated. It's like, oh god, that just—I can't even get into that. And then some don't really feel dated. They sort of feel like they were made, other than maybe the quality issues or costumes or you know a big ass cell phone or no no cell phone. You know, they just feel real and they they resonate. And um, I'm glad some of these have over the years. And uh, all I can say to people listening to this is, you know, if you're going to keep supporting and finding full moon films, and we're, we have quite a few we're making and proud of. Uh, it's all about streaming. You know, there's no lo- local video store, which I miss. It was great going to those stores. It was great that generations grew up discovering my movies and other similar films by going to their local video store. And those, those are gone now. There's, there's definitely <laughs> the corner video store is gone, and the big chains that that sort of wiped out the corner video stores uh, are gone as well. So uh, it's all about the streaming sites, at least for us, full moon streaming. And so come on board and, uh, you know, one more thing I should mention, which I'm really proud of, other than making a ton of movies and a lot of them I, I think, you know, play pretty well. I was also, I, I think, one of the first guys back in the late 80s to feel that fans would really love to see how these movies are made. So I started, you know, as a requirement, having a second crew on set, shooting all the behind-the-scene footage. And when we stopped, uh, started uh, Full Moon, from very from from day one, we had at the end of those VHS tapes, we had, you know, the videos on the making of. We we I just thought people would enjoy watching, you know, how the effects were done, and interviews with the actors, and blah blah blah. And of course, years later, as DVD happened and added value, I mean, everyone was dropping in that kind of material. But we have literally hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage dating back 25 years. And what's cool is we're putting it up every week, all of it raw on full moon streaming. Um, so, you know, if you're into Puppet Master, since we've made 10 of them, I don't know how many hours there are, but, you know, remember when you as a kid or someone watched Puppet Master and, and were into the 10-minute making of that movie, um, it took about four or five hours of footage to cut down to those 10 minutes that we were allowed to put at the back end of the VHS. But I uh, never throwing anything away. I've kept all the raw footage, so we're actually putting up. <laughs> if, if you're interested in it, you know all the raw footage. If you're in Romania, you know for years all the shooting, you know, all the subspecies movies in Transylvania. We we have all that material going up every week on streaming. So aside from movies and interactive stuff and all the fun in being part of that, we also have all this uh, uh, all this really cool stuff, which you know I find myself sometimes looking at because you know who can pay attention when you're there. In the in the heat of the moment, I'm thinking, God, that's crazy that uh, that we went to Transylvania just after the revolution, and people looked at us like we were nuts, and we shot vampire movies in Romania, you know. And um, so, anyway, that's another cool thing that people can find uh, uniquely find on the streaming. So, otherwise, good luck, and um, I, I appreciate the uh, the time as well.
back. Thanks to David Schmoller and Charles Band for talking to us. You can hear the first part of the interview with Mr. Band back on our Trancers episode from just about two weeks ago. So, gentlemen, we're talking about the tourist trap, and uh, we talked a little bit about this, but kind of seems to fit into, I guess, what you would call a uh, genre of pictures, sort of stuck in the house, cabin in the woods kind of idea. I definitely, I think you mentioned Evil Dead before, or Evil Dead 2. I really got that. Uh, just in that opening death when all of the mannequins are laughing and all of a sudden the laughter stops totally reminded me of ash and when he's laughing with all of the things like the uh the stuffed deer head on the wall and the clock and all that and just the insanity of that scene and i like that ash is part of that insanity whereas this one it's the guy who's kind of experiencing this, but we get that scene later on where we've got Jocelyn Jones and she is being, all these screams are coming out of these mannequin heads and she's screaming back and it just keeps going on and on. And it's just like, wow, the, it, I really feel like they did a great job when it came to, you know, using that as uh, kind of this madness that is going on and kind of pervasive in the film. But yeah, I, I definitely saw some good quote unquote cabin in the woods types things here. They were missing a couple things like the harbinger, you know, the guy who's warning them not to, to go to the, uh, the tourist trap <laughs> and, uh, You're doomed. You're all doomed. And there's no, uh, nosy sheriff. You get that harbinger visually with the vulture on top of the sign. That's true. The trained vulture, which I thought was like a, uh, a a puppet the first time I saw it. And then when you see it again at the end, it's like, oh, yeah, no, that's a real vulture. But yeah, it does very much play with the, the different tropes of the slasher genre. Uh, considering, though, there was no real slasher genre at the time this came out. I mean, this was shot side by side with Halloween. Other than, like you mentioned, Rob, the uh, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there wasn't a whole lot. I'm sure that there were some 60s films, haunted house films, that kind of stuff. But as far as like actual outright slasher-type movies, yeah, this was right at the birth of this stuff. So I want to say that this kind of lent itself, or this was part of the blueprint when it came to what we would see years later. Though I suppose that uh, Scooby-Doo kind of did play into that. They, maybe they were the, the prime source of all this stuff. Would have got away with it, too, if it weren't for you meddling kids. All right, we're going to take another break and play an interview with the cinematographer for Tourist Trap, Nicholas von Sternberg. You kind of worked with um, Rudy Ray Maher through pretty much all the movies that he did. I saw that you did some even some photography on Disco Godfather and um, second unit work on The Human Tornado. What were those productions like? Well, they were a little bit more organized than Dolomite was. So Dolomite was, you know, really a difficult production because it was my first production, you know, first professional production. And I was just 21 years old when I, when I did it. I hired students, you know, basically in the various jobs, but I had to hire professional grips and electricians. It's going back a long ways. You know, it's really hard to remember all exactly the details, but... But the other productions seem more professional. Come on, it was only, what, 40 years ago? Yeah, it was, it was more than 40 years ago. It was, let's see, 73 was, oh yeah, 40 years ago. Yeah. That movie always struck me as Dolomite, always struck me as kind of a, a one take and whatever you have, you have. Was that kind of the way it was? Yeah, it was. 
it was directed by a guy named Derville Martin, and he was uh, an actor, basically. And he didn't have any directing experience. So, you know, it was just pretty much pretty much uh, the first take. I forget what the, uh, how much raw stock we had. I think we had 40,000 feet. But it was, it was 5247. It was the first time anybody had shot anything on that emulsion. And it was quite different from 5254, which was the prevailing emulsion at the time. We had to wait uh, three weeks for processing. We got a process of CFI, which was the only lab that would do it. It was a long time to wait for dailies. We shot for three weeks before we saw dailies. What was different about that stock? It used a different process. It was a high-speed process, and it was very, very sharp, very sharp stock, and it couldn't be pushed. It had to be shot at, at uh, ASA 100. We were using the old lights. You know, it was, it was really hot on the set. You know, it was really hot to shoot at ASA 100, and it was extra hot because we used, you know, it was basically, you know, shooting on, on location at the time was really different than it is today. It's completely different. We had to shoot with a BNCR a camera, which weighed 138 pounds, and we had a gearhead, and we used a, you know, we used a dolly under it, and, you know, it's it very heavy equipment. We had build juniors and seniors, and, you know, the, the equipment was really heavy. And the old cable, you know, it was, it's really a big deal. Yeah, it doesn't sound like you could just pick up and get the next shot right away with that. No, it was, you know, films really changed a lot during the 70s. You know, the equipment became lighter. You know, just a couple of years later, the the Panaflex came out and the uh, Airy BL, they started to use that. You know, we started to use it. And, uh, but you know, Dolomite was really you know, the old style of uh, location shooting. When you worked on um, Human Tornado and um, Petey Wheatstraw, that was Cliff Rockmore directing those. What was he like? Cliff was really a great guy. As I remember, he really had a good sense of humor. And he was very, he had a definite idea about how he wanted it to look. He wanted it, he was quite different working with him. He, uh, yeah, he, he died, you know, a few years ago. Yeah, I heard he lived in Detroit for a while. I tried to look him up and I never could find him. Yeah, I think it was shot in Cleveland. Uh, if memory serves, he was a big, uh, kind of a big deal in the theater world. Yeah, I worked with him on and off for a, a few years. He was really a great guy. Yeah, they, they were all, you know, really wonderful people. You know, Deville and Cliff and Dr. Jefferson was another one. You know, they're really terrific people. How did you get involved with Tourist Trap? I was I was interviewed for it, as I remember. I had to show dailies. I had to show uh, some film. You know, at that time it was difficult to show films. You know, you had to you had to borrow films, and uh, I, I I don't remember exactly how I got hired. I remember I interviewed with David and uh, Larry Carroll. They probably remember better than I do. What was it like working with David? Well, uh, David's it was David's. Um, it was his, really his first theatrical film, I think. I think they were involved on, um, what was the name of that film? So it was a, kind of a big film, a 16-millimeter, uh, that they shot in Texas. Uh, Texas, wasn't Texas Chainsaw Massacre, was it? 
Yeah, it was one. Of, I think it was. I think that was the film they were. They did, and they uh, both came from uh, San Antonio. Anyway, uh, David was um, David was a real filmmaker. You know, he had his he had a vision of what he wanted. Obviously, because Doris Trap was very different. I I haven't talked to him in that long. You know, it's been I haven't talked to him since since the seventies. He had a vision about what he wanted. We we had he hired me for about a week before production, so we had time to to prep the film. We discussed the shots. You know, we we in, we went around to each location and we broke down the shots as much as possible. I think we storyboarded them actually, and you know he was very receptive to my ideas. And uh, the film was, you know, it was the result of a collab- real collaboration between director and uh, DP. You know, so much of that film takes place at night, um, whether there's, it looks like exteriors being shot out at night, and then even some of the interiors, you know, they, they definitely look like they were lit to appear like they were being shot at night. Was that uh, a challenge for you? No, I I wanted to do it that way. We used dark light at night. See, where did we shoot the nights? We shot out at near Malibu Park, near Malibu State Park. And we shot at the L.A. Zoo. There are some parts of the back of the L.A. Zoo that was closed down. Yeah, it was, I mean, I really loved shooting at night. You know, I, I wanted to shoot it at night. It was, but it was part of the film, you know. The interiors were shot during the day. And, um... Yeah, it's kind of a low-key style film. It was all—I think it was all 5247. They didn't have any high-speed stock then. And when did that come in? Was that later 70s or 80s? I don't know. You know, I'd probably make a mistake if I if I told you that date. There aren't a lot of special effects in there, but there are some very effective special effects. Was that kind of one of your first special effects films? Well, no, I've been doing you know ever since. I knew a lot about special effects because I, I read a book about them and I used to experiment with them, you know, on the films that I did from the very beginning. They were actual mechanical special effects. You know, like they they uh, they were pretty simple. But one of the special effects we did, which I remember I did for the first time, is we built a rim on its side and we had things fall towards the camera. It was the opening scene and we had this camera shooting straight up. You know, it's a, it's a really good film. Did you see it on film or did you see it on DVD? First time I saw it was on a really lousy VHS tape, but it still came through. And I since then I've seen it on DVD. Unfortunately, I've never gotten to see it on film. Mm-hmm. It's really different to see it in a theater with people, you know. It's... Well, it, it seems like it's almost shot more beautifully than it has a right to be, you know, for being what could be kind of shuttled aside as like a supernatural teenagers getting slaughtered film. There's so much more to it. Well, it was, it was um, part of David's vision. He he hired uh, Pino DiMaggio to do the music. Yeah. He really did a good, good job on the score. You know, everybody really, even the art director and uh, Robert Burke, I think was his name, and Ted Nicolau was the editor. You know, they were, we were all really into the film. It was special. Now, I know Chuck Connors had been working for years before this point. How was that relationship going on between Connors and the and the younger folks that he was terrorizing in the film? 
Tanya Roberts had been in about five or six films, I think. And so did, I can't remember the the names of the actors. They were all, they were, were, we'd all done a few films. They'd done a few films, you know, four or five films each. So it wasn't really their first time. Chuck was really great guy. We really got along well. Yeah, I miss him. Yeah, over the years, you've done so many films and so many different films. What are some of the, the favorites for you? What do you, you know, when you uh, recommend your work to other people, what are some of the ones where you say you have to check this out? Well, I haven't recommended my work to anybody in a long time, but uh, a Texas film was really a good, I thought it was a good film. Some of the work I did for Dimitri Logothetis, you know, like The Closer, that was really a really good film. You know, I worked on about 50 features, but I think the work I did later was better than the work I did earlier. It didn't really make a difference. You know, the the film I'm known for is Dolomite, and yet that was the film that I did first. You know, so <laughs> it 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 just happens that I'm I'm known for that film, but I I didn't have any experience when I shot it. I had I'd shot a lot of student films before I shot Dolomite. I shot about 50 or 60 student films. I was really popular in UCLA for shooting films. <laughs> Had you always wanted to be a director of photography? No, I didn't. I wanted to be a director, but I, it didn't work out. It worked out. But it was, I was director of photography, which which was appropriate. You know, I had a I had a, a natural ability with uh, machinery and cameras, and I was really drawn to to the physical nature of being a cameraman, you know, to the to the cameras and the lights. I knew every piece of equipment really well. It was just natural for me to shoot, and I had a good sense of composition and lighting. You know, it's just, it just natural ability, and I fell into it because of that. It seems like the the other cinematographers that we've talked to in the past, it's kind of this almost weird mix of artistic ability and then technical know-how. I mean, to hear some DPs talk about the length of lenses and as you've talked about the different film stocks, it just seems like there's so many variables that go into everything and that to be a DP, you have to have all that stuff playing in your head as well as getting the shot, getting that, having that composition and everything. That just, it, it always kind of astounds me to hear cinematographers talk just because you have so many different plates spinning at one time. Yeah, but it's a dying art. It's really a dying art. It's really becoming a video art. You know, film is really changing. It's really, there are a few films made. They're pretty traditional, but they're, even there, they're not really traditional, you know. Their video, their video assists and all that. Now everybody watches what's going on all the time, and it's different than it was. Did you do much work with video? No, when I started out, you know, there were, it was just purely film, and there weren't very many cameramen. You know, there were just a handful of cameramen that shot non-union, and uh, you know, I was I just got into it at the right time. If I'd got into it today, whether I'd, you know, have much of a career, but back then it was really, you know, it was easy to get to have a career going. Nobody wanted to be a director of photography. They all wanted the the glamour of being a director. Yeah, you know, it changed a lot 
over the years, you know, I mean, it rapidly changed uh, in about, um, by the time the 80s came along, you know, I mean, there started to be a lot of cameramen and film schools and all that. But there weren't any, there wasn't any class out there. I was at UCLA, you know, and there wasn't, I don't think that anybody, I didn't meet anybody that was interested in being a cameraman when I was there. You shot so many films with Graydon Clark. What was your relationship like with him? Well, it was very good. You know, we were good friends. He had a, uh, a vision about what he wanted. It wasn't really a, a cinematic vision. It was more of a dramatic idea. But, you know, he, he got what he wanted. I did work with him for a while. I worked with him on many films. You know, we even went to Russia and Bulgaria together. You know, we did a lot of films together. It was fun to be around. Is that when you're doing, um, what was that, the, the Hit the Dutchman? I started, I shot Hit the Dutchman. Well, we shot Mad Dog Cole first. That's the one that Graydon did. And then I worked for Menachem Golan on Hit the Dutchman. And he hired me again on Crime and Punishment. He didn't, he didn't, I, I, I hate to speak ill about anybody that's passed away. And I passed away last year, but he didn't pay his bills. And that was really a problem. It was, you know, really a problem for uh, the people around him. You know, I mean, he owed me money. He owed, he owed everybody money. That's eventually the reason why I got out of the business. I got out of, out of the business in, in 2000 because I was working for a Canadian company and they stiffed me for a day and they stiffed the whole crew. And, of course, the whole crew, you know, was angry with me because I got the job. And I went, I, I told the, the producer, who was a friend of mine, I just, would, I just wouldn't work as a director of photography anymore. I just quit the business completely. I don't know if that made an impression on him, but anyway, it was a good time to get out. What did you do afterwards? I taught. I became a teacher. You know, I was teaching in elementary school first, and then I, then I became a high school teacher. That must have been an interesting transition. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was. Are you still teaching now? Yes, I am. I teach special education. The business changed, you know, so much, and the, and the films became uh, short scheduled, and they. Became, I I started working. I I used to work with first time directors a lot of time, and it just wasn't the same. You know, it was it really really wasn't pleasant. It could have been, but I, you know, my career didn't just, just was very flat. You know, I, I had a, a good opportunity when I worked with Bogdanovich, but it didn't pan out. You know, it, it just didn't go anywhere. I didn't, my career didn't go, I didn't work towards doing more studio films. I just did more independent films and it just became very frustrating to me. What was that like to work with Bogdanovich? I worked for several weeks before we started shooting. He wasn't the kind of director that would sit down and, and knew what he was doing before he, he shot. He wouldn't uh, give me any prep, exact prep for uh, before we shot. You know, like he wouldn't uh, work with me to find out what direction we were shooting from and all that. So I basically, by that time, I just, I was working with a very good gaffer and a very good key grip. And a good camera assistant too, and I just went in and and just analyzed every every set from every angle. You know, every anything could could 
happen. And that's the way I prep the film, you know, as if uh, I'd shoot from any angle. And so um, it was a long schedule. It was 14 weeks we shot for. They weren't really a hurry, you know. They they just wanted every every shot to be right. That's what it was like when we were Bogdanovich. Yeah, I haven't heard from him in years. We shot we shot a film in New York. That wasn't uh, produced. That wasn't um, finished. It was called Another You, and he got fired on it. And I didn't. I was let go at the same time. About halfway through the picture, we shot for six weeks in New York, and they didn't use any of it. They hired a different director, and he reshot the whole thing. It was with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. All right, I remember that one. Yeah, well, they did several several films together. It's quite an experience working on those big pictures. You know, to me, it was really a big picture because it was it was a studio film. back thanks to mr von sternberg for taking the time to talk to us so gents we look back on this film from the late 70s the tourist trap and the question we always seem to ask on this show no matter what film we're talking about is uh does it hold up and would you recommend the tourist trap to others what do you think i think it certainly holds up because it's those mannequins are, are still very creepy and there have been plenty of movies that come out with the whole creepy doll look none really on the same level that Tourist Trap achieves because it's more than just the creepy dolls. It's like why they exist. You know, the person behind them makes them even more terrifying. And I'd recommend this movie to just about anybody I know that really likes horror films. I mean, it's deliberately paced. There's people that like the, as you pointed out, the Joel Silver style of filmmaking. And this one does go a little slower, so it'd be a patient watch. You know, I'm reminded of a conversation of a couple weeks back, Rob, where we were talking about trancers and the whole idea of really great actors in kind of a B picture or a lower budget picture. This one feels very much the same. I know there wasn't a ton of money going on behind Tourist Trap, but you have such strong performances and such really good ideas. And it's executed very well, so I don't want to say that it looks cheap or anything. You mean inexpensive, don't you? Isn't that what you meant? Inexpensive, yes. There's nothing cheap here. That's what I thought you meant. This inexpensive film definitely works, and I think it works because of the 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 bevy of ideas, the really strong performances, and these things hold up after all this time. So it's still creeps me the hell out to this day, you know, twenty fifteen all these years later, still works. So I recommend it. That might be part of the reason why it works, is that it isn't overly done. It's not high gloss. It does. It has a grit aspect to it, which lends itself to a certain level of reality when you watch it, even though it is dealing with the fantastic. So I think that's one of its virtues, is the fact that it is uh, cheap. You mean inexpensive, don't you? Isn't that what you meant? We're going to play a preview for next week's show. That's what I thought you meant. Slave. Barbarian. Warrior. Thief. Conan. They said you'd come. A man. 
strength. Conquer all. One who could crush the snakes of the earth. Bears of their own deaths. He's evil, a sorcerer who can summon demons. Day of Doom is here. What daring! What arrogance! I salute you. the most incredible adventurer of all. The man they call Conan. The Barbarian. Coming to a theater near you from Universal Pictures. That's right. We're back next week with a discussion of John Milius's Conan. We'll be joined by El Goro of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast to discuss all things Robert E. Howard. Before we go, we want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Mr. Alex Jowski. Alex, we've been part of the Geek Juice family for a while now, so for folks who aren't aware of it, can you tell the folks at home what Geek Juice is and if it is better to be served chilled or hot? <laughs> it's better to be served however you choose. <laughs> Warriors drink. Geekjuicemedia.com. It's a site I've put together years ago that's still running where we have different shows and podcasts. Some are original on the site. A lot are just in syndication that we carry on the site. And we work with the people on these shows and make new th- crossovers and things together mostly covering movies but we have been trying to get more media on the site lately like video games and whatnot so if you like movies definitely checked out plenty of commentary and discussion and shows about movies there thanks again for coming on the show and it's a pleasure to finally have you on uh mike and i were recently on a on an episode that you did over there looking at um, the work of the cohen brothers so you can check that out over at geek juice and i think mike you've also done uh, some more of those uh director retrospectives yes i believe very soon we will have a david cronenberg twofer coming out over the next couple months is that right alex actually the next couple weeks couple weeks okay Sounds good. And of course, we'll be sharing those with you as well and let you know. And we want to thank you, of course, for listening each and every week to the Projection Booth. And if you haven't had a chance yet, can you do me a favor? Go over to iTunes, rate and review the show. It really helps us out. And, um, you know, I, I just want to tell you that unlike the cat who went looking for the gas in the uh, early go in this film, uh, there's, there's no creepy dolls over at uh, iTunes, uh, at least on the Projection Booth page, so you got nothing to worry about. You just go there, you give the five stars, you give the review, you write it up, you tell other folks, you pass it along, you get on Facebook, you get on the Twitter, you get on, uh, I don't know, Friendster, if that's still your thing, and uh, you, you let folks know, and, and that's a, a good thing for us, because that keeps the road close to our little uh, circus sideshow called the Projection Booth over here, as opposed to the big freeway over there that leads everyone to somewhere else so don't uh don't uh, allow uh mike to um to kill me and turn me into a mannequin so please go to itunes uh, and review it uh, as soon as you can One, two, three, four.
Again, with a little more feeling, just a little more oomph. Okay. Can you do it with a German accent? We're going to play the preview for next week's show. I, I really want the emphasis on in July. I think we are the people is different than we are the people. I don't want to argue. Please, please don't argue. Um, I, I believe it's pronounced sabotage. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to play a preview for next week's show. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.